Well, good evening, everyone. Um, let me welcome you to this, the first of this uh, academic year's um, visiting speaker program here at LISI. Um, delighted to see so many of you here. Um, also particularly pleased to be able to welcome uh, a couple of our uh, new visiting fellows this evening, uh, Dido, who's sitting in the back, and Mikhail, and um, we'll, we'll hopefully arrange something for them to speak later in the year. In the meantime... And John... Oh, <laughs> sorry about that. Hi, we haven't met yet. We'll sort that out. Apologies. Um, so, um, well, the first speaker this this series is uh, James Dawson, who hasn't come um, very far to join us this evening, just up the road from, from UCL, um, but talking on the incredibly um, interesting and, and topical subject of, of Serbia and Bulgaria. Um, I, I'm sure a lot of you were following we did extensive coverage of the um, the elections in Bulgaria this weekend, such as they were. Um, uh, a question of when the next elections are going to be, from the sounds of it, rather than anything else. Um, so I'm sure that you'll have a lot to say say on that and contribute to it. By way of background, um, James has worked at the UCL School of Public Policy since 2013 and currently serves as acting director of the MSC um, in Democracy and Comparative Politics. Um, before working on the book that will be the subject of tonight's um, lecture, uh, James published um, survey and ethnographic research exploring political identities in an ethnically mixed town in southern Bulgaria. The main finding of this comparative ethnographic project is that the Serbian public sphere is considerably more contested, pluralist, and at the margins, liberal, than its Bulgarian counterparts. This demonstrates that the progress of post-socialist states in implementing liberal democratic institutions to the satisfaction of the European Union is not a reliable guide for ascertaining whether or not liberal democratic ideals have taken root in those societies. Um, very interesting. Um, at this time, uh, at a time when several formerly socialist EU member states are increasingly attracting scholarly attention for the rise to power of illiberal and sometimes plainly anti-democratic political movements, such as in Hungary and Romania, this kind of analytic focus on ideas and identities could help to explain why institutional progress has not necessarily led to the formation of liberal democratic publics. James. Thanks very much for the introduction, James. Um, okay, so yeah, uh, as uh, my colleague just mentioned there, uh, I'm currently working at, at UCL. Uh, some of you may know I'm actually uh, providing maternity cover for Dr. Cheryl Strohschein who uh, I'm hopeful she might show up at some point tonight. Um, and, uh, okay, so the, I, have now, I have now my book cover. Uh, it should be available in oh, hard copy. <laughs> it, it should be available in hard copy by the end of the month, I'm told. Uh, I can only say nice things about Ashgate. Um, so... Uh, Okay, the structure of today's presentation. So uh, I'll tell you about um, the, the study in a very outlined form. Um, measuring democracy in uh, Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, I'll be talking about the, the general kind of apparatus of democracy measurement that, that exists. Um, I want to say this is my, my real focus with the book. Um, so you, you all know that, you know, Bulgaria comes off worse than Serbia from this comparison. It's controversial. It's potentially also quite glib. Uh, my, my wider point is that the apparatus of democracy measurement is, is somehow flawed in a way that is shown up by this comparison. Um, 
So then I'll, I'll look at um, the approach that I use, which is uh, adapting a framework from existing public sphere theory um, to, to look at these cultural uh, dimensions of democracy that are somehow missed out at present. Um, I'll show you some evidence from my fieldwork in Serbia and Bulgaria, and then offer some conclusions and points for discussion. So, um, what did I do? Well, this is um, a mostly ethnographic project, really. Uh, although I should say uh, I analysed uh, political discourse from above and below. Um, I probably spent just as much time in, in front of my laptop and in the library looking at archival and secondary sources on uh, the formation of political identities in the past uh, two and a half decades as I did actually in the field doing ethnographic research. So that was also a, a big part of my methodology. So in terms of the ethnographic part, the, the below part of the study, what did I actually do? Well, I was in a niche in, uh, in southern Serbia uh, and, and Plovdiv for roughly half a year each. Uh, the long periods of field work were spent in 2011, uh, six months each. I returned to both countries more briefly at the time of the Serbian elections in May 2012. Um, in each of these two cities, I conducted uh, 12 peer group discussions. Uh, these were purposively sampled the maximal variation of, of viewpoints. So I worked together with lo local social scientific colleagues and uh, looked at existing literature in order to try and uh, tick as many boxes as I could. Uh, you, you know, I had three different uh, age cohorts, I, I aimed for equal numbers of males to females, and, and so forth. Um, and yeah, I applied more or less the same principle to participant observation in the, the varied context of everyday life. I, I joined more or less any voluntary organisation that would accept me as a member uh, in order to avoid biasing my sample towards my academic colleagues and students and so forth. Okay, so the regime of democracy measurement that we have, the people in this room probably know a, a lot about it. I want to say first of all that these uh, minimalist and statistically oriented measures, uh, the, the work of Perzhevorsky and his colleagues, uh, Polity 4, they're rarely applied in the qualitative literature on, uh, on the part of the world we're talking about. Um, for example, uh, PACL is a uh, binary classification system, democracy and dictatorship in the world. Uh, most of this part of the world is considered to be part of the world in which the, uh, the war of ideas for democracy has already been won. So these can't really give us meaningful comparisons between uh, the countries of the study. Um, Qualitative and multidimensional measures are, uh, are much more influential here. The most important by far, of course, is the EU's own uh, democracy uh, measuring apparatus. We might think about the, the three uh, Copenhagen criteria, um, and of course its uh, annual opinions and then accession judgments. Um, these are mirrored to a, a very great extent by uh, a particularly detailed uh, measurement framework called Freedom House Nations in Transit. Uh, so Freedom House is a US-based think tank, but it annually produces a democracy score for, for every state in the uh, former 
uh, communist world uh, that this refers to. There are seven uh, categories, uh, so elections, um, national democratic governance, uh, also includes some that uh, hint an interest in the spread of ideas through society, civil society, media independence, and so on. Uh, I'd like to say that both of these measures, EU and Freedom House, they have a shared legal formalist ethos, um, which leads into the fact that you see that the uh, Freedom House Nations in Transit scores are kind of a mirror of the EU's own accession judgments. If you look at uh, Bulgaria, for example, you can see the scores starting in 2003. I, I know this went past your eyesight. Um, and then they generally close in. The scores get better until uh, 2006, when, when Bulgaria crosses the threshold to be considered a consolidated democracy. It gets under free, according to this uh, framework. Um, and then you see uh, Bulgaria gets in in 2007, and gradually you see the, the scores coming back out again, the, the so-called uh, problem of democratic backsliding. Uh, this is mostly the case for more or less all of these uh, new EU members. I'm showing you up to 2012 for a very deliberate reason. It's because my fieldwork data applies to 2011-12, so they match up. Yeah? Um, if we look down the bottom at Serbia, um, it's generally stagnant for the last 10 years or so. It's closed in a little bit from 388 to 364. Um, you'll see here that no one um, Balkan country, so-called, mostly Western Balkans, uh, has a score as good as any one country in the, the part of uh, Central and Eastern Europe that's now inside the European Union. So there's a kind of a, a healthy gap between the two Subregions here, and this is something that my research challenges. So, on the, partly on the basis of measurements such as those provided by Freedom House, we have um, around about 2007 this idea that the, the EU has really done a great job in uh, promoting democracy in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, I'll quote from uh, Akia Kubik and Vakudova, who, who presented here last year, actually. Um, the European Union may be presiding over the most successful democracy promotion program ever implemented by an international actor. The track record so far is excellent. Every democratizing state that has become a credible future member of the European Union, except perhaps Serbia, has made steady progress towards liberal democracy. Now, this does sound very triumphalist. Um, certainly, a, a lot of people in the international community uh, felt like this at the time. Um, now, you know, looking back in the rearview mirror with all of this uh, democratic backsliding um, in our recent memories and, and problems such as those we've seen in Romania and, and Hungary, um, it's easy to accuse the authors of um, putting far too much store by the results of these formalist measures. However, the article itself is much more interesting than that. I would argue that the, or, this is because the authors know the region very well. Um, so you also have uh, this anxiety uh, coursing through the article. Uh, democracy needs informed citizens and the culture of moderation. Thus, a proper democratic culture needs to be developed, i.e. does not exist already. And you have 
lots of phrases uh, throughout this article talking about the problems of this idea of creating democratic citizens, what can be done. No expense should be spared to instill pro-democratic culture in, in the countries of the region. So at the same time, we have this idea that democratization in the region is mission accomplished, and we also have the idea that it's a, a nascent cultural project that's made little progress in the direction of producing liberal democratic citizens that the authors would like to see. So, my answer to this conundrum is that democratization is both a legal institutional project and a cultural imaginative project, and that the problem of measurement that, that we've, seen, we've seen so far is because Freedom House in the European Union measures only one of these projects. Um, now, my purpose here is not just to, to trash uh, Freedom House's uh, approach. Um, if we look at um, things that they do in terms of uh, monitoring electoral processes, uh, even uh, media independence, uh, they do this, I would argue, um, very consistently according to their own ethos, which I would describe as legal formalists. So uh, this is a picture of uh, Slavko Cheruvia. He's a journalist who was murdered in the, the dying days of the Milosevic regime. Um, now, even in 2012, the Serbia uh, media independence score suffered because the killers of Cheruvia had not yet been brought to justice. Um, now, I would argue that this is some um, very useful information that, that I really couldn't get at by my, my ethnographic uh, methodologies. Where I think they do less well is in terms of the, the spread of ideas throughout society, this, this problematic of the creation of liberal democratic citizens. If we might think about political discourse, what do people argue over in politics, and about the, the everyday public sphere, what are the, the understandings of, of, of ordinary people about the um, political choices they have. Um, they do look at civil society, but when they do, we find, in fact, that um, they're looking a lot at the regulation of the NGO sphere. You know, that the NGO sector is well regulated, um, that sometimes they describe civil society as vibrant, and then a few sentences later, you get this less important sentence that says, but NGOs do not enjoy public support. Um, you, you, you look down into the small print of the, the long qualitative sections to justify the scores, and they will list you know, that there are 217 uh, women's groups, 314 um, environmental groups. Most of them appear to be active. However, we're told nothing about the philosophical content of these uh, campaigns that these supposedly active civil society move movements are using. Uh, for example, a, a women's group might uh, campaign on the basis of um, female emancipation and uh, wage equality, or it might be trying to persuade women to have more babies in order to uh, maintain the population, for example. Uh, perhaps a more serious and prescient problem is that a lot of these civil society groups might simply be created by parliamentarians in order to hoover up EU funds who like to see uh, women's groups and um, environmental groups. So 
this is something that I would argue you need a far more uh, ethnographic and perhaps discourse analytic approach in order to even consider uh, describing with numbers as Freedom House does. Okay, so this is where the theoretical framework that I'm putting across here comes in, and obviously I'm building on the work of a, a lot of people that have wrote about the, the public sphere. Um, the idea was popularized by Jürgen Habermas. Um, so, to give a, a short definition, it's an aggregation of sites in society through which individuals meet and discuss public matters, constituting themselves as democratic citizens in the process. Um, I also uh, bring in the ideas of uh, scholars such as Chantal Mouffe, um, Michael Warner, who argue that um, we shouldn't really be going towards consensus, as Habermas advocated, uh, that pluralism is in fact an inescapable fact of, of democracy, which I would argue is a, a very sound critique. Nancy Fraser, for example, is also arguing much along much the same lines. Um, a few points. Why is it good to evaluate democracy through the public sphere? Well, I would argue that the, the citizen focus um, reconnects the study of democracy to the basic emancipatory purpose of the exercise. Uh, this is something that we really don't get when you look at, for example, the EU's language of um, necessary criteria and technical reforms. Uh, it really isn't morally neutral. It's there's a reason why we promote democracy. It should, uh, life itself should be experienced as liberal and democratic if we're to, to follow this through. Um, another reason, it encourages a critical reappraisal of the quality of established democracies where institutions remain pristine, but according to, let's say, Colin Crouch's argument, less and less substantive policy is up for debate. Um, we, we, we cannot test whether or not uh, Crouch is correct unless we, um, we look at our own democracies too. So public sphere theory, it gets rid of the idea that we need to be benchmarking um, Balkan and non-Western democracies against uh, the more powerful ones in, in the West. And if we look at most of the sociological work that's been done so far on the public sphere, it is oriented towards a critique of our own democracies. Um, I like particularly uh, Nina Eliasov's uh, study of the American public sphere. Uh, like me, she's an ethnographer. I can say that this uh, influenced my approach to some extent. Um, so she, uh, she used the argument that most Americans now live in suburbs. She went to an unnamed uh, suburban area that sounds suspiciously like somewhere on the West Coast and um, went to all manner of voluntary associations from, from groups of peace activists and environmental people to, to country and western bars and the Buffalo Club, the idea of maximal variation of viewpoints. Um, she argued that more and more in America, people were reluctant to, uh, to talk about politics and political principles and ideologies in public, that more and more often they were phrasing things in terms of individual interest. Uh, 
in particular with a reference to the, the, the women in her uh, group, she says that uh, the women felt obliged to phrase every um, piece of activism or, or complaint in terms of the interests of their children. So that's why I've used the, the meme from The Simpsons here. Um, so most public sphere theory, not all of it, but most of it uh, applies some kind of political liberalism. Um, and the idea is that the important uh, factor here is the making of citizens. Um, I'll quote Chantal Mouffe here. What we share and what makes us citizens in a liberal democratic regime is not a substantive idea of the good, but a set of political principles specific to such a tradition, the principles of freedom and equality for all. Those principles constitute what we can call, following Wittgenstein, a grammar of political conduct. She elaborates here that there will always be debates over what the correct balance of freedom and equality is. You know, there'll always be place for uh, right and left style debates. Um, but this basically implies seeing citizenship not as a legal status, but as a form of identification, a type of political identity something to be constructed, not empirically given. And of course, as any, let's say, sociologist of nationalism knows, these things can be measured, the spread of ideas across society. Okay, if we're to identify what is liberal democratic discourse, we've also got to be able to identify what it isn't. Um, I would argue this is not as difficult and intractable a, pro a problem as it sounds. It's probably impossible to quantify, but with an engagement of theory, I think it can be done. Now, in, in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, it's long been argued that the dominance of national and social conservatisms will usually mean that liberal discourse is recognisable as a distinct civic alternative. If we're to take uh, Sabrina Rahmet's idea that that civic and nationalist uh, principles are uh, mutually incompatible and corrosive of each other. Now, I don't go that far. I think uh, I agree with uh, people like uh, Calhoun that all democratic pluralism rests on some form of national solidarity. So not all national uh, forms of solidarity are necessarily illiberal. Um, so I use this analytical rule of thumb. When liberal and illiberal principles clash, liberalism has to win. Now, how do you tell this empirically? Well, again, I'd say not that difficult. Uh, we can use our, um, our experience of these things to tell if you've got a politician, for example, like, like Jinjic, who's not in a situation where he can just disavow all kind of national or patriotic interests, but carefully tries to reframe the national question so as to not trample all over liberal principles. And at the same time, we can see, um, let's see if we think about uh, Denisha Kostovicheva's uh, recent uh, work on discursive denialism, where you have politicians like uh, Vucic, for example, um, who, uh, who, who selectively comply with liberal principles 
and at the same time try to win votes on the basis of undermining those same principles. I would argue this is something that is much more easy to do in, in practice, in the field, than it is to, um, to pick it out in a way that is definitive um, and, and potentially quantifiable, uh, i.e. all public sphere research must necessarily be qualitative. Um, if we think about the British Daily Mail newspaper to give a, another analogy of how this might work, 90% um, of the times that you see the words tolerance or, or liberalism or democracy in that paper, it's in a positive context, right? They're, or at least they're trying to identify themselves with these, um, with these principles. On the other hand, I would argue that it's really quite easy to see that in the context of modern Britain, that this paper is actively trying to undermine those principles by using them selectively. I.e., it's great to be quoting um, John Stuart Mill when you want um, Muslims to, to, to treat their women better or you want to justify an invasion of a, of a Muslim country. And it's, um, you, you know, then it might talk about uh, silent majorities and uh, privileged minorities and to undermine those same principles. So not that difficult to do. We can call this the Daily Mail test, yeah? And of course, why is this important? Well, apart from the fact that the public sphere is a locus of democracy that's important in its own right, democratic institutions are also reliant on the public sphere. So the, the institutional template of democratization is the, the historical realization of liberal principles. Um, now I'm gonna consider liberalism to include modern liberalism, yeah? Uh, from John Stuart Mill onwards. Uh, you, you, civic tolerance, representation, these are parts of the, the liberal template. Um, so citizens, including office holders, can only attain the capacity to uphold liberal democratic institutions when they both understand and identify with the principles enshrined in them. Um, if you think about something like an ombudsman institution, let's think about how it might work if, for example, the ombudsman, him or herself, is a, a nationalist historian. It's unlikely to work the way that it's supposed to. Yeah? There's a specific institutional design there. And um, if the post holder uh, neither understands nor identifies with that, then these can be um, undermined, and they, they very frequently are. Um, I could give you several examples from the fieldwork period in which this happened. So here are my kind of uh, main findings between the public spheres in Serbia and Bulgaria. So in both states, uh, there are strong similarities. The, the political mainstream is uh, characterized by this uneasy blend of liberal and illiberal norms on behalf these days of notionally pro-European, pro-democracy parties. The main difference comes in uh, what I would call the resonance of liberal cosmopolitan ideas with a significant minority in, in Serbia. Uh, which has prevented this illiberal exclusivist consensus from forming around conservative orthodoxies on nation and society, as I would argue persists in Bulgaria. 
definitely persisted up until the time of my field work in 2011 to 12, has been weakened slightly since, but it's still mostly intact. Okay, so the political mainstream. Um, so, Serbian and Bulgarian political discourse. I would argue that if we look at Tadic or at Nikolic, or Borisov, or um, the, uh, the Bulgarian Socialist Party uh, that was then in opposition, he, he was working with the Socialist President Pavlanov then, um, we have pro-European rhetoric, you have a strong pro-business agenda, um, you have nationalist historiographical narratives underpinning political competition. Nobody really wants to, to lose the votes that are, are tied up in that. You, you have um, the ideas of uh, privileged minorities here and there. Um, and definitely uh, authoritarian strongman tendencies in terms of the personalistic forms of, of leadership and um, the willingness to abuse uh, democratic institutions. Um, now, I also looked into um, the range of political discourse in, in recent history. Uh, the, um, the findings were a little more interesting. Of course, political identities can, can form, they're partly dependent upon, uh, political competition uh, during the lifetime of the, of the people concerned. Um, if we look at the, the Serbian case, um, over the last 20 years, the mo probably the most obvious figure to mention is Milosevic. Um, there was very strong anti-democratic uh, articulations of political identity. Um, to some extent, this has been uh, continued by people like uh, Pushtunica. I would argue this has been counterbalanced. By, uh, by politicians like Jinjic, who, who tried to really uh, give guidance and to stick their neck out politically in order to advocate um, not only a uh, politics that was nominally liberal and democratic, but also actively opposed the actual threats to liberal democracy in Serbia. Um, in Bulgaria, we, we don't have such a strong anti-democratic poll. Um, you, even the, we might say, the, the worst from a liberal democratic regime that we had in, in recent Bulgarian history, if we talk about the, the Bulgarian Socialist Party during the 90s, they were still willing to abide by election results as Milosevic wasn't. Um, you had uh, dissidents like, like Zhelev, uh, very few people in Bulgarian politics, I would argue, hark back to this as, a, as an identity-forming period. The, Zhelev was very frequently overruled by the, the socialists at the time who had most real political power in the first seven years. Um, it's often described as a delayed transition. Um, I looked in particular detail at the cost of uh, administration from 97 to 2001 because there are many Bulgarians today that identify with, with Europe and democracy that, that talk about this regime in terms of when they formed their political identities. Uh, it probably was the most uh, philosophically consistent political movement in the country. Um, 
for example, you, you know, you have all this uh, talk of uh, free journalists and the capitalist economy. You have this follow through with policy. Um, you also have a, a kind of um, softening of the, the liberal positions of the Bulgarian Socialist Party. You have um, the signing up to the Copenhagen framework on, on minorities. However, I would argue that you didn't go as far as Djindic did. You didn't go as far as an active opposition to illiberal tendencies in the country's political culture. You were still giving um, the order of Stara Planina to nationalist authors. There was a strong uh, nationalist counter-narrative throughout these uh, years of this administration, which managed to keep the, the idea of liberal democracy conflated with the liberal um, norms underpinning political competition in the country. Um, it didn't give the same kind of guidance if I'm a citizen in that country as, as Jinjic's or even perhaps Jovanovic's movement would have since. Okay, so I argue that there's this whole public in Serbia that I call the, the liberal cosmopolitan counterpublic. How am I doing today? Great. Okay, so yeah, this liberal cosmopolitan counterpublic, I'm probably talking about perhaps 15% of the population. Uh, how do I ca calculate this number? Well, if you look at um, the LDP, their votes, they generally, until they collapsed at the last election, got about 6% of the vote. Um, generally speaking, one met far more intellectuals and highly educated Serbian citizens who, on principle grounds, disavowed any attachment with that party than one did supporters. So I would say more than double the number of Serbs were willing to go along with this actively anti-nationalist, pro-feminist, what, what MOVE calls, for example, uh, radical democratic citizenship. Yeah, there's a lot of people. It's not enough to win elections, but they exist. Um, and they exist beyond the ranks of professional intellectuals. So if we look at this sociologist words, whenever our politicians talk about Kosovo, it's all fiction. What they don't forget but marginalise is that Serbia only returned to Kosovo in 1912 after hundreds of years. So we have an active opposition to the parts of Serbian political culture that might threaten democracy here. But there's also a significant minority. So I've spoken about the, the magnitude here. The point here is that liberalism is a primary political identity. Uh, if we think about uh, the, the online broadcast Peschini, um, if we talk about uh, News.net, which is a satirical user-generated content, if we look at uh, the graffiti on the walls for every time that somebody writes um, uh, Serbia, Serbima, you have someone who writes over it, Serbia, Svima. This is not just university intellectuals who are doing this, is my point. There's a, there's a lot of, of people out there. Um, even the LDP. So uh, in a recently published book, uh, Jessica Greenberg calls this the politics of disappointment. You know, I know that all of this dismantling of the welfare state isn't what you wanted, but the alternative is international isolation and nationalism and going back to the 1990s. Um, and yet, you know, 
even for all the flaws of this party. Um, you know, Jovanovich, when he's campaigning, he's saying, I won't form a coalition with anybody if they don't recognize the independence of Kosovo under Albanian leadership. You, you know, politically, he can't afford to, to give up this commitment to, to pluralism and advocating the, the rights of minority groups to whom he does not belong. Yeah? So, in Bulgaria, I want to add this caveat before I, I start with all of my strident criticisms, that it, it wasn't that hard for me to find um, the, the, the words and the writings of Bulgarian intellectuals uh, that I found instructive to describe the political culture in the country. That, that there are people who are willing to advocate the, the rights of marginalised ethnic and social groups. Um, my point is, I would argue, that this isn't backed up by any particular social constituency. There is perhaps nowhere in Bulgaria that you can walk into a, a, a social milieu and start telling people that Bulgarian nationalism is lies and, and expect people to, to agree with you. Um, the, the political culture is characterised by taboos, and you see that when you get um, oppositional characters, more often there's a tacit endorsement of the, um, the uh, conservative narratives that underpin all political uh, competition. So an establishment historian might be somebody like uh, Bojidar Dimitrov, you know, a, ve a very strong uh, nationalist historiographer. Uh, so against him, you might look for people like Slavi Trifonov, who for over a decade has used the platform of his nightly show to um, berate Bulgaria's ruling classes in the name of the rule of law and transparency. Of course, Slavi Trifonov himself also has a, a nationalist song repertoire um, one often finds this conflation, which I, I find com confuses young people who bind their identity to, to Europe and democracy and so on. So there isn't what I would call a liberal counterproblic in Bulgaria. The economic liberalism is perhaps the only clearly articulated political position besides nationalism. Relatively narrow resonance. Yeah, there are some people that, uh, that wear uh, commitment to uh, fiscal discipline as a badge of identity that, that congratulate uh, themselves and their colleagues for getting into to NATO and then the EU. I would argue it's a small number, and what's more, you, you often find the, the conflation of uh, capitalism and democracy here. The, the Bulgarian democracy can still be said to be moving forward, even when it's moving backwards in the democracy indices and freedom of speech, so long as we've got alignment with the Europeans, right? Um, hard liberal positions, I'd say conspicuously absent from the national political sphere during the field work. There was nobody who was trying to, to change uh, the, the antagonistic narrative in high school textbooks, for example, during the field work period. Um, it was also, perhaps more importantly, sociologically invisible among my sample in Plovdiv. Every time that somebody would uh, say something that sounded very uh, promising from a, a liberal democratic point of view, uh, 
people are... Oh, I'll come to it. Sorry. I know that I'm pushed for time. Um, so look, what I find is that uh, among people in niche, uh, often people are suffering from really quite intense uh, economic um, insecurity. They're no kind of elite. We're able in very strong and principled terms to uphold the liberal institutions in the country. Uh, the Ombudsman is the only institution functioning in this country. Um, you know, here you have a very strong understanding of, of what that institution is supposed to do, which of course most people in Western Europe can't even tell you. Um, from the, the man's quoted below, uh, you have this uh, very strong advocacy of the, the separation of, of powers. Um, this is something that I would argue is really quite common. You can walk into a room and you can expect people, uh, so long as they identify with that particular type, uh, that particular part of Serbian public life, to, to, to be very strong on all of these categories. In Bulgaria, I found uh, there was more often confu confusion. I found that the conflation of philosophical opposites was the norm. Um, before I get onto these examples, you, you would have people talking about um, cutting down the, the forests, um, or politicians stealing money, or, or the oligarchs, and you'd think, okay, you know, I'm in liberal company here. And then you'd hear complaints about how the, the, the Roma are privileged and nobody uh, goes after them when they're committing crimes. And, and this is very normal, and I would argue that it's a direct consequence of the lack of guidance that you've got in, in politics and civil society in that country. Um, this woman's quote is, is instructive. Note that she has bothered to do a uh, PhD at a democracy institute. This is how I've met her. Uh, these are all pseudonyms, by the way. It's not really Anna. Um, I am so angry with our politicians selling the forest like there are no laws. What we need is for a team of rich and successful businessmen to be put in control of politics. Rich enough not to be tempted by corruption. How on earth does somebody identifying in terms of liberal and of European democracy suggest handing over the country to a bunch of oligarchs? Probably a pretty good description of how Bulgaria was run at the time she, she said this. I, I would argue that you can see these same narratives if you look on uh, the, uh, among the journalists even of the um, Sofia News Agency on their English language platform, which is considered to be outside of the control of um, political elites. Um, this woman below, uh, I mean in Europe, you cannot go press protesting on the street like that. In Europe, things just do not work that way. Yeah, so this idea that you know, Bulgaria is behind because it, it doesn't have a national unity that these great states like Britain and Germany have, um, very pervasive. Yeah, why is it pervasive? Because there's very few people that are in the public space explaining to people, yes, we need more feminism, yes, we need more anti-nationalism. So overall conclusions here. The Serbian public sphere, I would argue, is not marginally, but considerably more contested, pluralist, and at the margins even liberal than its Bulgarian counterpart. Now, now I'll, I'll give the caveat. I focus disproportionately on that 15%, as I claim, of the Serbian population in order to make this point. My point is that this is a, a public that really doesn't exist next door in Bulgaria. 
So this demonstrates that the progress of states in implementing liberal democratic institutions to the satisfaction of the European Union is not a reliable guide for ascertaining whether or not liberal democratic ideas have taken root in those societies. The qualitative analysis of the public sphere can, I would argue, address this question. It's not replicable in the sense that positivist research is, but for qualitative research, I would argue that if you go with the deliberate intention of looking at these kind of cultural dimensions of democracy, that most other researchers would find something equivalent to, to what I've found. And that if somebody like Freedom House is going to carry on describing with numbers, then it can include these cultural aspects of democracy uh, in its measurements. It doesn't need to stick to the, the legal formalist stuff. Do I have time for a few more further directions? Very briefly. Very briefly. I'll end the slide then. So, um, back in 2007, I did an internship in Bosnia. Um, there was a young man from the Netherlands who'd been sent by the European Union to talk about the Yaqui community. Um, and the message, the mantra that he kept uh, repeating was the Yaqui is 90% uh, technical, 10% political. So sometimes it changes in terms of absorption capacity. He was keen to avoid getting into much detail at what he was there for, which was to make the Bosnians do police reform. Yeah, and to unify it under central command in, in Sarajevo. And most of the questions were, uh, were good-natured. You know, uh, it, it seemed that his message was well-received, except for the last uh, Bosnian lawmaker of the day who asked the question, why don't we just do it like a nation now in the EU that I won't name, did with their judicial reforms, by simply cutting and pasting Slovenia's laws and not even bothering to delete the word Slovenia. Now, at the time, I thought, okay, you know, canteen gathered in the, the rumor gathered in the canteen downstairs. Uh, now, having looked at the apparatus of democracy measurement, I really think that there's something in this skepticism that many uh, people in the former Yugoslavia had about all of these great strides in democratization that were being made next door. And my point is, of course, not just Bulgaria but Romania, Hungary, almost every state where you saw the numbers on these Freedom House figures start going in the right direction very rapidly. That these reforms were almost definitely more sociologically shallow than, um, than we imagined that they were. And I think that in future, if this apparatus of democracy measurement is to be credible, we need to start looking at how embedded in culture and society uh, liberal democratic ideals are. Okay, thanks for your patience. Thank you very much. We have about half an hour um, for questions and answers. I think there's going to be um, quite a lot of debate here. Vesely. Uh, I, I found the the, the, the presentation extremely interesting uh, and I uh, learned a lot from it. Um, I think you do an excellent job in um, analyzing um, a new dimension of democracy uh, in Serbia and Bulgaria. Um, I do 
However, we have a number of concerns about uh, the research. Um, I have my pen ready. Yes, quite. <laughs> um, I mean, first of all, um, it's, it seems to me that uh, uh, the key problem uh, in Bulgaria and perhaps in Serbia is that uh, formal democratic institutions are not working particularly well. Um, in this context, um, focusing on um, uh, debates in the public sphere could potentially be a distraction. Um, indeed, I think one could go further. Uh, it is possible that shifting the focus to debates in the public sphere could actually undermine formal institutions, could lead to their fragmentation. One can see that very clearly uh, in Bulgaria in the course of 2013-14. Um, it seems that the protests, which were largely motivated by the desire to develop debate in the public sphere, have led nowhere, and if anything, have undermined uh, the effectiveness of formal institutions, um, which was not particularly high to start with. Um, secondly, uh, I wonder whether uh, liberalism uh, uh, may not, uh, in some cases, undermine social solidarity. Um, I think for any liberal democracy, we need liberalism and social solidarity to coexist in a creative tension. If liberalism wins over every time, then this could undermine uh, uh, social solidarity. Um, I mean, to put it in a slightly more parochial terms, I think in a county democracy we need both the Guardian and the Daily Mail. Uh, I think just the Guardian would probably not be enough. Um, and then thirdly, uh, in spite of the fact that you mentioned in your theoretical uh, overview that most people working on uh, the theory of democracy recognize that uh, nationalism is an important part of creating the solidarity that we need for liberal democracy. Your empirical research was essentially based on the opposition of uh, democracy and nationalism. Essentially on the opposition between liberal cosmopolitan values and nationalist values. So whenever you saw in, uh, evidence of nationalism that was uh, ipso facto taken to be an indication of the weakness of democracy. Um, is there any way in which you think that the, uh, nationalism and democracy can be compatible? And if so, how can this influence the empirical research? Okay, uh, thanks for those questions. Um, there's probably uh, enough here for me not to uh, pull questions right now. Um, 
Okay, I'll try to deal with it point by point. Okay, so the key problem in Serbia and Bulgaria is that formal democratic institutions are not working particularly well. Um, well, I'd argue that this is um, one of two key problems in, in Serbia and Bulgaria. Um, I, if we think about, for example, um, the position of the Roma in both of those societies, um, it's not only uh, a problem of formal institutions, it's also a, a problem of, of discourse and ideas and, and culture. Um, so could the, the public sphere be a distraction? Um, I suppose I don't share your, your analysis of the 2013 protests in Bulgaria. Um, I do view them as um, positive steps. So if we, if we consider, for example, that in, in the time of my fieldwork in September 2011, there were these, um, these protests uh, centering on Plavdiv, but throughout the whole country, that were seen by the European <coughs> press as anti-Roma um, riots. Um, and, and of course they, they were, you know, the, the Roma experienced them as anti-Roma riots. Now, when I'm uh, speaking to people, probably a slim majority uh, of my um, sample sympathised with, with the rioters or, or took part in them. Um, now, most of them were talking about Bulgaria not having laws, about... They would tell me stories about um, oligarchs and, and how you can buy politicians, and this is why I was on the streets. Um, Fast forward to 2013, and, and many of those same citizens are, are now on the streets uh, complaining about the conspicuous linkages between oligarchic networks, to use the, the vernacular of the mafia, and, and, and politics. Um, I would say that this is a, a spectacularly positive refocusing of, of public energy. Um, anger towards people who, who have actually got uh, some part in their predicaments. Um, so I don't see it as distracting from um, institutional reform. Uh, it would be nice if they'd also talked about the tampering of the electoral codes and all this stuff. But I, I don't see it as... Um, I, I see it as anything... Uh, moving us slowly towards a Bulgaria in which you're going to have citizens who will eventually be able to say you shouldn't do that because of X and Y. So I, I think that the, the public sphere not over the course of one year but over decades can evolve to the situation uh, like I would argue that, that we have to some extent in Serbia where you have those citizens who wish to use the democratic institutions in order to force through politics into a more progressive direction. And I don't think that most of my uh, informants had the capacity to do that. They didn't really understand why these uh, Europeans wanted us to be uh, less majoritarian than we are. Um, Okay, uh, the second question. So, does liberalism undermine social solidarity? I would say uh, not necessarily. Um, if we look at um, 
Habermas's idea, a big idea on this, is this constitutional patriotism, um, that, that one can be uh, proud of uh, all of these bills of rights um, promoting the, the tolerance of the, of the other and so on. Um, maybe a more realistic idea is uh, Calhoun's idea, that, that, that nationalism and liberalism co-evolved together, and uh, if nationalism were gone completely, we would miss it. Uh, I think this is true. Um, I would say that um, even if we look at the British Conservatives and their rhetoric, there's an effort from people like David Cameron to try not to trample over the, uh, the principles of liberalism. Um, I'd love to imagine that at some point in the future, in, in Central and Eastern Europe, we're going to see a, a political landscape where all sides of the political spectrum, uh, in order to kind of belong to mainstream politics, you need to not keep saying those things in public that Boyko Borisov does. Um, I, I think the, the idea that nationalism and liberalism can coexist so long as liberalism wins and is preeminent I think that it's hard to quantify, but you can observe when people are trying to do this. Um, do we need a Guardian and the Daily Mail? Possibly. I can say that the Daily Mail is a lot less damaging to the quality of British politics when there also is a Guardian. Uh, the, the key principle here is pluralism. Um, my informants would not keep... Uh, uh, mistaking authoritarian visions of order for the rule of law uh, if they also had a guardian to look at instead of or something like this uh, we all know about the state of the Bulgarian print media at the moment um, final point um, empirical research based on the opposition of democracy and nationalism um, I do make rather a, a big deal of nationalism here, but I think that it's an issue that is uh, underplayed in the discourse about uh, the quality of democracy in Central and East European states that are not in the Western Balkans. Um, that if we consider Bulgaria with its constitutional forbidding of the ethnic parties, you know, de facto every party apart from the ideologically vague MRF is a Bulgarian nationalist party to some extent. Um, that these are social um, challenges that need to be confronted sooner rather than later if we're going to arrive at a, a situation in which the, the, the broad populace is supportive of democratic institutions, including the inconvenient ones like civic tolerance. Um, but there's more to it. You know, if we think about authoritarian visions of order, uh, this is really nothing to do with nationalism. You could find them, I'm sure, to a great extent in the former Yugoslavia with their whole brotherhood and unity. Um, so I would say that nationalism is a big part of the problem here. And I would say not just nationalism, but ethnic exclusivist versions of nationalism, um, which of course exist in virulent forms in Serbia. The key difference is that they're directly and massively opposed. Um, whereas I would argue that this is the kind of 
consensus upon which the political community is built in Bulgaria. It's a little bit strange to argue that um, that being European and democratic has got very little to do with the 19th century liberation of Bulgaria. Um, it definitely won't win you votes in Bulgaria. People try saying these kinds of things in Serbia. So again, it's about, I suppose, the, the pluralism of the national cosmopolitan pole that I, I think is lacking. Uh, thanks. My question is really on, on the last point. I, I take the point, of course, that um, you know the argument that you put forward that uh, uh, sort of quantitative measures of democracy and institutional legal measures uh, cannot give you the whole picture. And of course, you know, it's like political culture, uh, uh, liberalism, uh, liberal ideas in society, participation, so forth, are, are important. It's a different question whether you quantify them. But then going on to quantify them through this kind of comparative analysis, exactly as Brazilian suggested, that you know, comparing liberal ideas versus uh, nationalism, um, it seems to me really difficult to say that you know, because nationalism is not the same, or the conditions for nationalism are not the same in, in Serbia and in, in Bulgaria. You know, what it means to be a nationalist, or what it has meant to be a nationalist in the last at least in the last 20 years, in, in uh, Serbia has not been the same uh, in Bulgaria. You don't have a, a, a Turkish minority party that participates in the political uh, process continuously, in, or the equivalent of that, in Serbia. Uh, so, so then, if you live in Bulgaria, uh, and, and nationalism is not, has, does not carry the same connotation, the same uh, uh, power, if you want, that it does in Serbia, then perhaps you can compromise. It's not conflating the liberal with the nationalist. It's that you can compromise uh, these ideas and be, you know, carry some, as Calhoun suggests, some carry some uh, uh, illiberal nationalist uh, views together with your your liberal views. Whereas in Serbia, this separation has to happen if you want completely. Uh, otherwise, you cannot find peace with <laughs> with yourself. You know, you, you have to be one or the other. So then both as a question in itself, but also what does it mean about the qualitative measurement in informing uh, you know, the quantitative measures of democracy? Your comments? Um, yeah. I guess this is one question. Uh, all right. Um, I suppose... Um, in these slides, I've focused a lot on the the opposition of ethnic nationalism and, and liberalism. Um, yes, you know, each country has its own uh, historical legacy and, and so forth. Uh, yes, you know, there are um, horrible things that happened in the names of nationalism on behalf of the, the, the Serbian state and its proxies. And uh, this probably did much to uh, discredit the... Uh, the, the validity of nationalism as an intellectually viable uh, political identity in that society. Um, even if this is the case, even if we can say that it's the, uh, the 1990s that, 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 that killed the credibility of nationalism in Serbia, um, in terms of measuring democracy, we have to recognise that the strong anti-nationalist um, counter-public that you've got is, is good and positive for, for supporting 
liberal norms. Uh, it's not a value judgment about you know how clever are Bulgarians or, or Serbs or something, but 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 simply uh, an observation that, that that these are actually very ardent friends of of liberal democratic uh, norms and institutions. And they should be recognised when we're measuring the, the progress of liberal democracy in that society. Um, now, in terms of uh, Bulgaria, you know, it, it doesn't have the same history. Uh, there's a Turkish minority in, in uh, the politics of the country. I would argue that, that, that minorities have in practice much less political power in Bulgaria than they do in Serbia. Um, if you look at the kinds of expressions that come out of the... Um, the Zvezka Zajednica, the the, um, the the Bosniaks, you, you, you know, the the pushing for secession, the Hungarians, the Bulgarians uh, in Serbia. I, I would bet also that in terms of uh, socio-economic development, they're doing better than minorities in Bulgaria. Part of the reason being that, of course, you have this uh, constitutional clause that forbids uh, that forbids the. Um, that any kind of uh, ethnic minority activism, um, you know, de, de facto it excludes Bulgarian nationalism from that. Every party is in fact uh, promoting the the, um, the exclusivist character of the of the Bulgarian state. Uh, this is the, the purpose of the state. It's a nationalising state in the in the terms that Rogers Brubaker coined. Um, now, uh, apart from uh, my focus on nationalism here, I can also talk about more generally nationalism is a bellwether for some issue that should quite obviously be more politicised than it is in Bulgaria and is not. If we look at, for example, feminism, if you are to speak to uh, many lo lower middle class uh, women in Bulgaria, um, and you ask them, have you ever been discriminated against? The answer is always a very firm no. If you ask them, uh, have you ever uh, worked as a waitress and been dismissed without being paid by the boss or, or, or being uh, sexually advanced in order to advance your career, they'll tend to answer yes. Um, so this is a case of hiding uh, the politics in many issues. And nationalism is simply the most obvious among many different issues, the political issues that are hidden or invisible within that public sphere, you know, partly affected by a chaotic media sphere in which deal-making between the, the oligarchs that own the newspapers and the politicians that are supposed to regulate them is uh, constraining the discourse. Um, but it's not just about nationalism versus liberalism. Eric. No, we've got a little bit. Okay. Um, all right, James. Um, I'm trying to imagine a hypothetical situation um, where some researcher from a distant place, let's say Bulgaria, um, comes to the UK with the question, uh, wants to establish how democratic it is. And starts looking around and says, well, it's got this established national church whose high officials sit in positions in legislative bodies to which they're not elected. Um, it's uh, got this government that as soon as it gets a majority is able to 
push anything through with more or less no restriction uh, for as long as it remains in office. Um, there's this bizarre, useless, uneducated German family um, that uh, <laughs> takes up an enormous quantity of resources. Whenever one of them like, has a child, uh, millions of people start waving flags. And there are parties that come up with wacko ideas, like uh, um, removing all the immigrants or repealing the Human Rights Act, and they, um, and they get popular support. And it looks pretty bad. And then it turns to the other side and says, but look, there are lots of creative people with critical ideas, and they're publishing them in magazines, and they're making art, and uh, it's really great. So uh, would you agree with this uh, hypothetical researcher in drawing the conclusion um, that, uh, um, that he or, or she has come to uh, um, this fabulous, vibrant, democratic state? <laughs> Okay, um, so, so you, you, you kind of uh, stole my thunder when you started talking about all the, the wonderful creative people who oppose all of these illiberal features of the British state. Um, so first of all, please do turn the lens of democracy measurement on the UK, on America. I really want to see where the numbers go when, um, when Nixon does Watergate or the US civil rights movement or... Or, um, or when Thatcher abolished the GLC. I think I know what would happen if, if uh, the Bulgarian leader did that tomorrow. And I want to see the, the lens shone upon the states that control the apparatus of democracy measurement. Um, but I think that the UK, these things are opposed. And that makes a massive difference to the uh, experience of life in this country that um, not only do people have a, a pressure valve, but in fact, um, you can see that there are also some victories for this kind of uh, Gramscian uh, pushing of gender equality and race. We no longer have elections fought on whether or not you want to live next to a black person in Britain. And this is all a consequence of the kind of... Uh, measurements of the cultural uh, dimensions of democracy that, that is possible. And I, I, I really uh, wouldn't bother to look at a um, purely legalistic um, measure of British democracy over the past 100 years. Uh, it would probably be quite dull, but really interesting things are happening in terms of the, the flight of, um, of uh, legislative uh, competence uh, from government to the private sector itself uh, in terms of um, yeah in, ter in terms of discourse in terms of what counts as a good argument so I, I, I think this could be done and it should be done actually it's really really intrigued by your idea by your uh, questioning of the existing quantifiable measures of democracy of those of uh, democratic deepening and uh, democratic backsliding. And you are actually saying that even if behaviorally democracy is the only game in town, that could be misleading because um, uh, in terms of ideas, it could not be. So basically, this is a new aspect of democratic dysfunction that I haven't thought of, that I find is very important because if, um, if the rules um, are not culturally embedded, things can turn around very easily. 
and there is very little appreciation in the existing measurements uh, uh, of this aspect of embeddedness. Um, so so uh, thank you for, for turning my attention to that. What uh, I want to ask you, what is your explanation for the lack of, as you say, uh, liberal counter-public in Bulgaria? Um, as far as I understand from your talk, you're saying that there aren't enough leaders in the public space who are repackaging the liberal practices with uh, liberal ideas. So many people do experience culturally illiberal uh, practices, but they don't know that they're liberal because nobody explains that to them. If, if I'm, if from, from what I get from what you said, this might be your explanation. And, I mean, how does it compare with other explanations of this democratic dysfunction, for example, the fact that democracy, democratic rules were imposed more or less by default in Bulgaria. I mean, um, communism imploded and this was the least hated, readily available alternative, so they might as well take it over. What is your explanation, I mean, even, you know, economically, I that you consider that? Yeah. Uh, I did catch your name, sorry. Uh, uh, I'm Gergana Dimova from Cambridge University. Okay, oh, thank you. Um, so, uh, your first point uh, gives me the uh, excuse to show off one of the slides I didn't get to. So, if we look at um, this question that a lot of people are asking, I noticed in the Bulgarian press yesterday this was all over, you know, can we compare boycott or ban? No. Um, so, for me, the more appropriate question is not, um, you know, who is most likely or ban. It's it's where is liberalism weakest? Things can turn around alarmingly quickly uh, when you find out that all of these uh, wonderful institutions, and I think they generally are a good set, um, are not embedded, as you say, in uh, in cultural practices. So I would argue that. Um, one of the reasons that Vucic is currently uh, sitting very nicely in the Serbian parliament in terms of majoritarian politics, but he's beset by all of these annoying activists, intellectuals who are trying to get on his nerves um, in a way that Orban is not, is because just as it was in the 80s, Serbia is still uh, almost definitely uh, more plural and that uh, people are, as you say, repackaging liberal ideas, um, uh, using the, the institutional uh, facilities available to them, sort of to push these um, progressive ideas and to make it harder for him, uh, which is, I guess, the tragic flaw that we saw in this recent democratization poster child of Hungary. Um, so. is, are you putting too much emphasis, I mean, how much emphasis are you putting on these public figures that shape the democratic discourse, and how impactful they are on the cultural perceptions of liberal, illiberal practices of the people? Okay, I'd say they're very important. Um, I would argue that, um, that, it, that when, when you're a young person growing up um, in a society, you want to... Um, you want things to work in your country like they work in a country like Germany, right? This is a, I want to live in a normal country was the refrain that we heard again and again in 2013 in Bulgaria. Um, how to get there? 
Now, when your entire public sphere is almost completely dominated by the idea that um, we need national unity, we need to align with, um, with European economics, um, you know, it's confusing. Um, but when you've got even 5% of the public sphere is dominated by people who, who stand up to the likes of uh, Borisov and Svetanov and they say, you guys get some things right, but, but what you're doing there is tacitly upholding a broken system. That, that, that you can't go out in public and say this and at the same time you, you, you give Gedkov his airport in Varna. Um, you, you know um, that the the voice of um, of philosophically consistent ideals is disproportionate to its appearance in the public sphere. This is what I find in Serbia, and and and, and uh, it doesn't take much for people to start realizing once those voices are available to to look beyond the mainstream media to go on the internet. Um, and people do. Um, and I find that the development of those identities that would even want to do that is, is lagging far behind in Bulgaria because, and I want to say this as well, I lived in Bulgaria for four years uh, in my uh, early to mid-twenties. I really couldn't locate my political compass during those four years. I, I didn't know... Uh, who was the least worst, who was better. Um, I, I knew I had lots of friends working wonderfully uh, opposing logging interests in the environmental movement. W was this environmental goals articulated together with other progressive aims like, like feminism and uh, egalitarian politics? No, it wasn't. It was strong uh, nationalist. Um, oh, part of our problem is that you know, the, the gypsies are logging all the forests. Um, wh wh why was it not possible for these progressive civil society to link up together? Because there's the lack of, of leadership and philosophical consistency that shows people that's the way to go. That's my argument. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, sorry, guys, you've left it a bit late. Um, I'm going to try and take maybe two or three very, very brief questions with brief answers. Maybe back. Yeah, uh, you were talking about environmentalist movement. It might be connected to a certain extent to the issue of public space in the public sphere. And I was wondering if you actually have looked at, at that in your fieldwork, which role uh, uh, for an assessing on, of democracy, the public uh, space and the accessibility and publicness of public space uh, played in, in what you have uh, observed. Okay. Sure. Just very quickly, Hungary is a test case because 10 years ago, 5 years ago, no one would have predicted this, given the discourse. Mm -hmm. So we have to talk further about that. <laughs> Romania as well, perhaps. Alexander, did I... Well, okay. From, so I saw a hand go up in that sort yes, of uh, tenor. Your research seems to suggest that there is almost no intelligentsia in Bulgaria. Like that is 10, 15 percent that you're mentioning in Serbia um, is basically absent. It's uh, intellectual conscience. Now, in the last days, weeks, I've been following a bit the Bulgarians abroad here in London, 
and I was really surprised by how sharp and clear is the reception of these people about the shambolic political situation that there is in their country. So they're all completely disenchanted, they all think that there is absolutely no hope, but they see things very, very clearly. So my question is, do you think that uh, this is a resource that Bulgarians in Bulgaria can pull from? And very quickly, I'm going to tackle on a question because this is very much sort of I, something I'd been thinking along the same line. You know, what was often said to me speaking with Bulgarians is that, say, you know, all the people who opposed the regime have left. They've managed to get out, whereas in Serbia you've got a large population who just are trapped. They can't. It's much more difficult for them to get the visas to leave. Now you could say that, you know, you could say that it's only this year, but the most resourceful people have been setting up their own businesses and getting past EU restrictions that way. You know, for, for the past four or five years. You know, what extent is is, is that sort of brain drain, um, perhaps having having an effect on all of this um, that you know might might need to also be taken into account. Um, so. Sorry for tacking that on as a last minute. Okay. Um, I'm going to try and answer these as quick as I can. Costanza, um, public space, um, physical space. Yeah. Um, I, I think one can study this in terms of the public sphere. Um, it, 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 I, I, I use the phrase discourse a lot to describe this. Uh, when one. Um, you know, if the town square is decked out in uh, red, white, and green, or, or, or the Serbian flag, then then I, I think that one can incorporate this into uh, a study of the, the public spheres. Um, I, I should say um, I, I didn't give particular attention to this. Um, I don't have a great deal to say. I'm going to move on to the next question. Um, So Hungary is a test case. No one uh, could predict it. Um, Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to plead limited knowledge. Uh, Probably my knowledge of um, of Central and Eastern Europe gets less and less as you go north. Um, That's okay. We're at the research institute on South Yeah. So you know, you might look at it as that I'm chucking out some hypothesis here, um, but but I, I I imagine that the if an Orban emerged in Serbia, you you'd hear a lot more about it. Um, I think that it, I think mm. that it's um, I think that it is uh, indicative of the. Um, Assumptions of the Serbian um, intellectuals that people are now worrying that urbanization or a Hungarian scenario might happen. That this includes a few assumptions that that it might, uh, but also that um, the Serbian public space is not yet as bleak and, and banal and, and closed off as as a state that's inside the European Union and still ranked much higher according to Freedom House. Yeah. Um, which is, I think, almost certainly correct. Um, so, Tena, uh, very interesting point. Yeah, Bulgarians abroad. I think that the... Um, I can answer these questions together. So the question is, that is there a brain drain in Bulgaria? There's two million people that have left uh, Bulgaria in the last 25 years. Um, I think they would have had... Um, 
some effect on the political culture had they still been in Bulgaria. Um, I think that they could potentially have more effect on the political culture of Bulgaria by coming outside of the country, mm. by not living in a, a, a place where the, almost the entire print and internet media is, if not directly controlled, but um, influenced by the constraint on the imagination that is caused by such a horrible concentration of... Um, uh, of uh, ideas and uh, interest in the media and, and I, I don't mean to get on the back of Bulgarian journalists here mostly female, short term work contracts almost no power you write something the editor doesn't like you don't have a job the, the next week in, in many cases uh, Ivo Injev, very successful Bulgarian journalist was getting five or 6,000 hits on his website at the time of uh, my field work um, and yet he can't find a job because he was saying things that the owners of his station didn't like. Um, it's very tightly controlled. And there's no particular social constituency that's going to you know, get together and form a Scott Trust to build a Guardian in Bulgaria. It's, it's just impossible at the moment. Um, yeah, so these... Um, what, what kinds of effect can the Bulgarian diaspora have on political culture inside that country? Well... I would argue that they're already significant. Um, I mean, there really isn't an intellectual left in, in Bulgaria inside the country. Uh, the, the Bulgarian Socialist Party has done everything it can to undermine social democratic ideas by the lack of congruence between word and deed for 20 years. You know, they've, they've really fed up their uh, um, oligarchic um, contacts. They've become billionaires in many cases. So we, we, we can forget about that as a, um, as a principled uh, philosophical politics. Uh, what we are having, seeing now is lots and lots of first and second generation people coming back from Austria, from Germany, um, setting up uh, small civil society groups, tiny in terms of resources. But hey, you know, if I were growing up in uh, Sofia, I might start listening to this, yeah? Um, what can one and a half million Bulgarians abroad do if they can vote? I th you know, I, I, I want to say that um, I want to say that if there was some kind of coordination, there, there is the, the you know, when you speak to, to Bulgarians who've spent their, their bachelor's degrees, for example, in England or in Canada, there's a completely different um, political uh, calculus that's behind the way that they understand uh, politics. When you look on Facebook, actually, and you see something like a, a, a nationalist controversy, like the, the, the Roma uh, things that were happening in 2011, uh, almost to a person, the, the, the young Bulgarians, many of whom were my former students on Facebook, were all uh, slamming the people who were on the streets protesting. Um, you know, whereas the Bulgarians inside Bulgaria were more 50-50 on it. So, so this can be a really powerful motor for change, I think. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Um, before 
Um, thank you, James. Just want to make a very quick announcement about the next, um, well, um, two of the, the forthcoming events. Um, we have next Wednesday uh, in this room at um, six o'clock a book launch of Fatos Lubonia, Volsa uh, Apocalypse from Stalinism to Capitalism, um, which looks at Albania. Um, apparently, quite an interesting um, figure, uh, controversial in Albania and uh, apparently very good value. So, um, and that's six, 6 p.m. Um, next Wednesday in this room. And then, um, in light of everything we've been talking about tonight, the great man himself, Alexander Vucic, is coming to speak here at LSE uh, on the 27th of October. Um, please be... <laughs> Don't be too rowdy. I think there's going to be um, a lot of... He's going to come in for some tough questioning that night. Um, but it, it should certainly be a, a, a very, very interesting event. Um, tickets will be released on the 20th of October. Um, and you can do that through the, the Lisi site. Um, it will be ticketed only entry um, for fairly obvious reasons. Um, so get in there early. Um, and um, look forward to seeing you a lot there. In the meantime, uh, James, thank you very, very much for, for, for this evening. Um, really appreciate it. I think a lot to, to think about and, um, you know, raising the points about Bulgaria, which, you know, is, is, is certainly a country that, um, you know, I, I, I've often felt we should be looking at um, more, more actively. And I think, you know, you've shown this evening, you know, why it is so very interesting and why there are a lot of questions about an EU member um, that, that simply, you know, does raise a lot of concerns and yet, you know, very few people seem seem to be paying close attention. So thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Right, thank you for having me.